Well, hello, friends, and again, a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. This morning, we get to continue our exploration of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, It is without question the most famous and impactful teaching given in human history. We said last week, even Gandhi puts this talk at the top of his list. Uh, It's a talk Jesus gave 2,000 years ago on a hillside near the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, It's a pretty incredible, incredible teaching. Uh, except for one thing, um, years ago during seminary, which is like uh, you know graduate school for pastors where we get trained, um, I, I made mention of the fact that the Sermon on the Mount really, if you look at it, is a horribly constructed sermon. Uh, it's impactful, but it's horribly constructed, and it was met by stunned silence by my fellow seminarians and the professor who looked at me with a bit of fire in his eyes. Uh, so being a 23-year-old, full of wisdom as we are, um, I kind of, uh, you know, told him what I thought. I said, well, you know, Jesus drops a series of revolutionary ideas in the Sermon on the Mount without giving anybody a chance to really respond. He just drops a bomb and moves on and drops another one. I mean, You can't really go tell people to gouge their eyes out to deal with the problem of lust without giving them time to ask a few clarifying questions, right? But if you read it, Jesus just keeps moving. And again, I I sort of keep talking and everyone keeps staring and the silence keeps getting more and more pregnant. And finally, my professor looked at me and said something I will never forget. He said, young Jedi. When Jesus gives a sermon, it's always a great sermon because Jesus gave the sermon. And I took a big, a big deep breath and I thought, you know, he raises a good point. Um, but I'm not Jesus, and so I thought it would be a good idea this summer as we explore the Sermon on the Mount to move a bit more slowly. I want to take the ideas one at a time that he presents and unpack them. I want to ask what it meant for those first followers of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And then I want to ask the question, what does it mean for you and me today? Uh, We've been doing this all summer, and I'm convinced it's a worthwhile mission because the ideas Jesus presents really do have the potential to make your life better and make you better at life. It's better for you. It's better for your family. It's better for your community. It's better for the world. And so that's kind of what we've been doing. With our time today, we get to explore what Jesus says about lust. Yay! You're so excited, right? And and, and here's the thing. Uh, When I first pitched this to the team, I kind of wanted to skip this part. And so I talked to Randy, the executive pastor, and he says, no, dude, if you're doing the Sermon on the Mount, you got to talk about lust. And so when we passed out the summer teaching assignments, I just kind of put his name on the list for this week. I thought that would be good, you know? And then he is not here today. He's on vacation. So that's how that panned out. Um, but, but I'm well aware that, that the topic creates a bit of anxiety in, in a whole bunch of us, especially if you have children in the room. You should know my kids are in the room too, so we're going to be just fine. Um, and for those of you that just, as soon as the the word hit the screen, you're like, I think my beeper just went off. I got to go check on something for like 28 minutes. I'll be back, right? If, if that's you, uh, what I want to do is put you at peace right up front uh, with two disclaimers. So here is the first one. Uh, when Jesus taught his disciples about lust, his goal uh, isn't to make people feel guilty and shameful. That wasn't his goal for them then. That is not my goal for us today. Um, And if you grew up in church like I did, this may surprise you because anytime you may have heard anything sexual talked about at church when you were growing up, you felt guilty. I mean, you've all heard this talk, right? Um, It goes like this, you know, welcome to church. 
you're horrible people, okay? And then, you know, sort of unpacking the sermon, you feel worse and worse about yourself. And then by the end of it, they say, um, you know, I hope you feel bad enough about yourself now to actually change your disgusting behavior. Amen, see you next week, bring a friend, right? And that's how that, that's how that goes. And you walked out feeling more guilty and more ashamed than you did when you walked in. But the good news is that guilt and shame are not the reasons that Jesus brings up lust. In fact, he brings it up because he wants to warn us because there's a clear and present danger present, lust presents to us in this life. And he does this not because he wants us to make, to make us feel guilty and ashamed, but because he loves us. He wants the best for us. He wants us to thrive. He wants to, us to find the best sort of life in the middle of this life. And so that's why he goes after this, this topic. Now, to be fair, Jesus' teaching may leave you feeling a bit convicted, but conviction is actually a great thing, and it's a very different thing than guilt and shame. For many of us, we look back on a time where we've made some changes in our lives that we really needed to make, and the energy to actually change often starts with conviction. So again, if you feel convicted, that's actually mission accomplished um, as far as Jesus is concerned. So that, that's disclaimer number one. Number two goes like this. Uh, Jesus' teaching is intended for both... Men and women. And, and so um, the reason that this is important to know is because when we think about lust, um, most of us immediately think about it being a problem for men. But Jesus knew what a whole bunch of other smart people have figured out. This is actually a problem for men and women. In fact, this week when I was doing a bit of research, I came upon a quote I want to share with you from a prominent women's ministry leader. And she kind of just does a better job than I ever could. She writes... Unfortunately, men seem to, have be, seem to be the primary targets when addressing lust. But it's a mankind sin, not a man-only sin. Women just have the ability to be well-mannered and discreet with their lust. Isn't that great? Uh, she goes on, we can prettyify anything. And I, prettyify, I checked, not a word. She uses it very effectively, though. Uh, including our lustful thoughts and desires. And with skilled self-justification, we can validate our sin by spinning it as just being romantic, not lustful. And, and so I'll let her speak to that. But, but I want to tell you that to say that Jesus wants to help both men and women with this instruction, uh, taking you back to junior high, today's talk is an all skate and should be helpful for all of us. So that established, I want me to show you what Jesus says about lust. So uh, just a bit of setup, uh, Jesus has uh, just called his first 12 disciples, uh, 12 young teenage or maybe early 20s Jewish guys, and he retreats with them up to a mountain near the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and about halfway through his talk, he drops this bit of wisdom. He says to them, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, and they had in fact, these young Jewish guys had grown up going to synagogue, Jewish church, every Saturday. They would go for a worship service, and then there was a synagogue school where they would learn the story of ancient Israel, as well as the rules or the laws or the commands that God had given to ancient Israel in order to set them apart from the other nations on the earth in order that they would be a blessing to other nations on the earth. It was like they had received light from God as to how to live, and they were to share that light with the nations. And included in those commands was one of the top 10, do not commit adultery. Basically, uh, through Moses, their leader at the time, God tells the people, don't cheat on your husband and don't cheat on your wife. Kind of like a baseline. And, and that was simple enough for them to understand 
But pointing them back to one of the original Ten Commandments was only the setup for what Jesus really wanted to say. Here's what he says next. It's kind of fun. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, and this is another one of those big buts Jesus is fond of. Come on, that was funny. I worked on that all week. That's, you know, Jesus says but a lot. And so what he's doing is he's saying for hundreds and hundreds of years, Moses has sort of instructed your behavior, but a new day has come. A new revelation is happening. But I tell you, and as soon as he says this, his original audience would have been shocked because Jesus was about to expand a seemingly simple command prohibiting a specific physical action to something, well, much more comprehensive and much more disruptive. And before I show you what he said, let me tell you why that was necessary. In, in the first century, the Jewish people had taken the do not commit adultery command very seriously and very literally. They vehemently condemned the act of adultery. In fact, there's that story where the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, pull a woman who was caught in the act of adultery in front of Jesus and say, hey, should we stone her? Spoiler alert, Jesus says no. But anyway, um, they vehemently condemned the act of adultery, but they largely ignored all the things that often led up to the act of adultery. They weren't living with wisdom with regards to their sexuality. They were being careless, not careful. So... As Jesus continues what he does, and it's, it's so brilliant, he brings another one of the Ten Commandments into the equation. It's actually the Tenth Commandment. It's the one that people tend to forget about. And it's different than the other nine commandments because it's this one you can't actually see someone violating because it happens in their mind. Or in the ancient world, they would say it happens in their heart. In many ways, it's a, it's a private sin. So before I show you what Jesus does with the 10th command, let me show you the original language of the 10th commandment. Again, Moses, Mount Sinai, here's what, here's what God said. He said, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, which I think is funny because somebody one day was like, hey, that is a nice donkey. I don't know, why would you think that? But anyway, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And so, so the idea behind this command is, you know, don't covet your neighbor's wife and don't covet your neighbor's life. And so Jesus brings up the sense of this command and then equates it with the command prohibiting adultery. And it's a move his first followers would never have seen coming. Here's, here's how Jesus says it. He says, you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. And they had, but I tell you, okay, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart, and again, his original audience was a group of guys, and that's why it's gender specific, but anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And, and, and let's pause here and ask a really, really critical question. What is lust? Or maybe a better way to start, what isn't lust? Well, lust isn't seeing another man or woman and thinking they're attractive, and it isn't driving by a billboard with a sexual image on it and you just sort of take it in. If, if that were the case, it would be impossible for us to live without lust in our hypersexualized culture. The Greek word that's translated lust in Matthew's account of Jesus' life <coughs> describes those times when you let your mind willingly linger on a sexual thought. It's, it's like uh, you're devouring someone with your eyes or maybe with, in your mind. And where this gets crazy is that according to Jesus, there's no moral and ethical uh, distinction between adultery 
and lust. They, they carry vastly different real world consequences, but he says they come from that same dark place in the human heart. I mean, one happens outwardly with your physical body. The other happens inwardly in your mind. But he would say both of them are equally out of place if you want to be the sort of person that lives the way God designed you to live. They would have called it living within the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, right? They were one and the same in the ancient world. If you want to live the way God designed you to live, you, you have to be incredibly careful to avoid both lust and adultery. So Jesus would say to us, whether you're married or single, Lust is as offensive in God's eyes, it's against his plan, and just as destructive in your heart as the act of adultery. And, and, and notice, with this teaching, Jesus challenges all the justifications and excuses that we tend to make for lust. Not us, but people we know do this. I understand that. We're just going to get that out of the way, right? But when we lust, we, we tend to think like, well, it's not really hurting anybody, is it? It's, it's just in my mind. But see, Jesus would say, no, 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 um, th th you're not thinking about this right. And so he dismantles that justification. He says that that's a lie, and it's a lie that's hurting you, and it's a lie that ultimately hurts the people around you. And here's why. You're taking a beautiful, God-given desire to connect intimately with another person and directing it at something that will never ultimately satisfy that desire. In the end, lust is a counterfeit, inf uh, counterfeit intimacy. And so it promises us something that it can never really deliver. It, it promises to make our life better, but it always ends up leading us in the wrong direction. Now, as I think about it, um, with this teaching, Jesus is brushing up against a toxic cultural myth that many people believed 2,000 years ago and many, many people still believe today. It goes like this. Sex is just a physical act. Sex is just a physical act. People think in our culture, you know, sex is appropriate so long as everybody involved consents and nobody gets hurt and nobody gets unwillingly pregnant and no one catches an STD. And you go, okay, well, that makes sense if sex is just a physical thing. And this myth leads us to all sorts of justifications and excuses that we've used when it comes to lust. We think, you know, when I look at porn... It isn't really hurting my wife. It isn't really hurting my husband. I mean, I'm not actually cheating on them. It's just porn, right? It's, it's, not, it's not physical. And if we fall for this myth, we can begin to believe that we're powerless when it comes to our sexuality. You know, we, we say things like, it's just my hormones and I, or I have needs. I mean, I can't be responsible for that. Or he's at work all the time. I mean, he's been distant and he doesn't give me what I need or or she got sick and she stayed sick and so she just, she's not able to give me the attention I need. Or, or I'm still single and I don't want to be single and I have physical needs that just aren't being met. I mean, what else do you expect me to do? And, and all of that, all of that is logical if sex is just a physical thing. But it's not. And humans are not simply animals who are slaves to our impulses. Which brings me to a picture of my dog, Hazel. Didn't see that coming, did you? Yeah, there she is. Uh, we just had her um, one, the one-year anniversary of when we brought her home. We called it our gotcha day to her, which she thought was really fun. And she got a new ball, and it was really exciting, you know, around our house. Um, but I, I show you this, this picture of Hazel, um, and, and she has been fixed. Um, and if, you, if you're here and you don't know what that means, you can ask your parents on the way home. But she's fixed. But if she hadn't been there would be nothing keeping her from engaging her sexual urges. 
And, and this is clear, there wouldn't be anything wrong with that, right? She's a dog, she's an animal, and animals are ruled by their desires. They don't stop to think about consequences, they just do what feels right in the moment. And that's why they sniff what they sniff and eat what they eat. There, I said it. Okay. Now, this may surprise you, but humans are not dogs, right? Except for maybe your ex. We'll, we'll let them be in a special category, okay? Um, we have physical bodies, but we also have souls. And, and if you're here and you're just exploring faith and you're like, oh, it just got mystical and spiritual and weird, hang with me because I think even if you're in that camp, you, if you think about it, you know this is true. Humans struggle with infidelity in a way that animals never do. Uh, moreover, humans are the only creatures on planet Earth who have ever seriously considered sexual abstinence. We're, we're physical creatures but we have the capacity to control our physical desires. So for humans, sex is physical, but it's also way more than physical. This also helps us understand why sexual sins, they, they, they hurt the most. And if we commit them, we carry the deepest scars from our sexual sin. Because even though whatever we did sort of felt right in the moment, it ended up having all sorts of lasting consequences. Randy, uh, Randy, the executive pastor, and I were talking about this this week, and, and over, over, the, over the decades we've worked with, with friends as they journey spiritually, like w when you come to a moment where they really take, you know, take responsibility for some sexual sin, it's like those are the hardest ones to forgive ourselves of because they're so deep. It's, it's, like, it's almost like if this is just a physical act, then why, why, why does it hurt so much? And so I, I'm convinced that's why, as Jesus continues, he uses intense language to warn us about the dangers of lust. In fact, it's over-the-top language. He knows how harmful it can be to us at the level of our souls. So with that, here's what Jesus says next. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin... Gouge it out and throw it away, which is awesome, right? And you're like, Jesus, buddy, you got to try the decaf. Getting a little hyped up here, right? Um, not to mention the fact that that's a bit violent and a bit more painful. Uh, and if I'm sitting there listening to Jesus and I'm like, does he want us to take this literally? Because like in a moment you would blind most of the human race. Because this just feels like maybe there's another way to read this. Not to mention the fact, and if I'm sitting there, I'm kind of raising my hand going, okay, Jesus, I know you're going to move on quickly, but here we go. Um, blind people can still lust. <laughs> so this doesn't actually solve the problem of, of, of lust. So so if Jesus isn't speaking literally, what is he trying to communicate? I, I'm convinced there's a clue if you keep reading. So Jesus continues, he said, it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And you're like, okay, wait, 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 this just got worse, right? Like, okay, now I'm gouging out my eye or I'm in danger of hell. That Jesus, what in the world, what in the world are you trying to say here? Uh, how did we get from lust, which is very common and really doesn't seem like that big a deal, to like our entire bodies being thrown into hell in just a couple of sentences. Like, and if you're ever reading the Bible and you come upon something like this and everything in you goes, there must be something I'm missing. There's something you're missing, okay? You just have to dig for it. And so let me explain what the first disciples of Jesus would have heard when he said these words. Because they understood heaven and hell a bit differently than we do. But to them, heaven is the place where everything is just as God wants it to be. In heaven, everything is at peace, 
everything has its place and everything is in that place. In heaven, all humans have inherent value as they're made in the image of God. In contrast, hell was seen as the realm where things were not as God wanted them to be, both in this life and in the life to come. In that place, people aren't treated as God intends. They aren't treated as fully human. They aren't treated as bearers of the divine image. Instead, what you find in that framework is that some people are viewed as nothing more than physical bodies or, in our context now, objects of lust which in this conversation is precisely Jesus' point. It's hellish to separate the physical from the spiritual dimensions of our sexuality. And Jesus would say, when you lust, that's exactly what's happening. You don't mean to do that, but that's what's happening. And that's why Jesus instructs us to take drastic measures to amputate anything in our lives that may cause us to lust, not because he wants to keep us from pleasure, but because lust violates something critical of about what it means to be fully human. So that's what Jesus said then. And what's fascinating is that we not only have his words, but we have the words of those early pastors who wrote to early Christian communities all over the Mediterranean Rim. As, as sort of these pockets of people in every major city came to believe that Jesus was the Christ. He was the son of the living God. He was the savior of the world. And I want to show you just one, one phrase from one of these letters. It was written by a man named Paul who wrote much of the New Testament. Uh, and it's a letter addressed to early Christians living in a city in Greece called Corinth. And you should know that Corinth, um, as far as sexual immorality was concerned, was, was like Las Vegas. It was, it was anything goes in, in Corinth. Uh, everyone was sort of encouraged to throw off all inhibitions sexually. Uh, there, it was full of pagan temples and there was temple prostitution in Corinth. And so in the middle of that mess, and again, those Corinthians would have grown up in that culture. They were like fish swimming in water that re didn't realize they were wet. They come to believe in Jesus and they start to see that the light that has come into the world has shown them a better way to live and they're trying to figure out what that means in their culture. And so to these Christians, Paul writes these words, and again, this is where we got the title for today, so I wanted to show you that. Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. Flee from sexual immorality. And notice he doesn't say be careful or watch out for the dangers of sexual immorality. He doesn't say be careful, he says Flee. It reminds me of my favorite movie, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Are you with me on this? Yeah. He doesn't, say, he doesn't say flirt with it. He says run away from it. And if that seems a bit extreme to you, you know, I was thinking about this and I think, okay, I, you, know, you can see what he's saying here. And you, if you're somebody who's carried a decades-long habit into this morning and you're kind of keeping this at arm's length, you're like, yeah, I haven't thought about this for a while. It used to bother me. I used to say, maybe I'll deal with this later. But now it's just kind of been a part of my thing for so long. If that's you, um, what I want to do is I want to give you something else to think about. And it's kind of a, a, a little backdoor to maybe think about this in a different way. And it goes like this. Uh, and this is true whether you're a church person or not. Um, if you're married... You want your husband or your wife to flee from sexual immorality. You would want them to amputate anything in their life that would cause them to lust. Because you love them, and deep down you know it's not good for them. And deep down you know it's not good for you. And the same is true for your kids. It's like, if you're a parent, you're like, what would I want to tell my kids about this? 
run away, right? We've lived long enough to know that, that you don't flirt with sexual immorality without getting burned. And, and maybe not in the moment, but eventually it happens. And so you want to say, okay, I love you. I care about you. Don't, don't, don't play close to the edge on this one. Or, you know, you want the same for your brother and your sister and your friends. Because we've all watched people take on the scars from sexual immorality. And, and it, it hurts them and it hurts their families. And it, 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 it takes things in the wrong direction. So you can see it really clearly with your spouse and your kids and your friends and your family. But like when it comes to us, when it comes to you, you know, you, you probably have the thought that a lot of us do. Like, you know, I, I can handle it. It isn't, it isn't that big a deal. It really won't affect me. And, and so you don't flee. You just, you just continue to flirt. And eventually, when you flirt long enough, somebody gets hurt. And so if you were God, and I know that's a stretch. It is for me. You know, if you were God, what would you tell you? And what would you tell the people you love about how to avoid getting trapped in a pattern of lust that could lead to all sorts of other problems. What would you tell you? And I just want to, as we land, I just want to give you three really simple suggestions you can take with you. Uh, first goes like this. Don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. I mean, the Christian life is not intended to be an individual pursuit. Uh, we are supposed to surround ourselves with people who know us, who can help us. And, and in regards to this stuff, it's easier to make the changes we know we need to make when we have someone else to keep us accountable. You can only get so far on your own. And this is me talking to you and this is me talking to me because I've been a pastor for 20 years and you've seen the news. You know that pastors struggle with this stuff just like everyone else. And so for me, there has been a pattern in my life where I have at least one other guy who knows me and loves me, not just as a pastor, but as a person. And when we get together, they say, how are you doing with your purity? Are you thinking things? Are you watching things that you shouldn't watch? And again, the, their goal isn't to make me feel like guilty and ashamed. Their goal is to go, dude, I want to help you be everything God made you to be. I want to protect your key relationships. I want to protect your integrity. And if no one is asking, man, you're just like the rest of us. And so if you want to consider this, I, I would say it this way. You don't have to tell everybody, but you need to tell somebody, Right? Find that friend you have, uh, you know, and, and just and say, you know what, Would, could we enter like a new level in our relationship? I would love to just hold one another accountable. And the easiest thing to do is start by talking about your struggles in the past, right? This is my past struggles with this. This is my past regrets. And then you can talk about your present reality, like how am I doing right now? And that's where, you know, you'd say, you know, I, I'm, I'm okay, but I feel like I'm sliding in the wrong direction because this isn't a one and done decision, right? This is a decision you make every single day. And then you talk about your future hopes and dreams. Like, where do I want to be down the road? What sort of model do I want to be to my kids? Like, how do I do this? So, so past regrets, present reality, future hopes and dreams. What, what, is it that, what is the sort of life that you want to build? And their, their goal, as you as sort of confess and as you seek accountability, is to make you feel hopeful, not guilty, and remind you that you're loved to remind you, and I love to say this, but it, it's that if you're still breathing, Jesus isn't done with you. 
If you're still breathing, he's inviting you to take steps to follow him and find a better life. Whatever's in your past is in your past. He shows you grace and he says, you're not disqualified from life. Let's move forward and let's do it better. And so sometimes it's, it's, it's nice to hear that from me, but it's better to hear that from a friend who knows the details. It says, your life isn't over yet. God still loves you and he still wants to build something beautiful with your life. So that's number one, don't go it alone. Number two, monitor your inputs. Uh, And this is a way bigger deal uh, in 2019 than it was even a decade ago. I mean, I grew up in the 80s and inputs were like magazines that you had to somehow get a hold of, right? And some of you remember those days. Um, And now, I don't know if you've noticed, but somebody invented like the whole world of information in your pocket. You guys have one of these? Yeah, and the reason this is more tricky today is that like my kids uh, literally never lived in a world where they were not aware of the iPhone. To say this a different way, my kids have never ever used a phone with a cord on it. <laughs> we were at a cottage a couple years ago and uh, my, my third son was sitting at the counter and they had a phone that had a wire going to it and they had the handset thing and he's just doing this with it and he's watching it. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, what is this? And I said, it's a phone. And he said, where are the buttons to text? And I thought, I am old, right? But now, because of the beauties of technology, like we have access to all sorts of things, good things and not good things on our phones. And so it's like we have to pay attention to what we're doing. The internet isn't good or bad. The internet is a tool, but it can be used for good and it can be used for evil, and and so what are we doing? I mean, there are a lot of sites on the internet that are better left unvisited. And again, if if this is a pattern for you, I I mean, seek out that accountability because it's really, really tricky to unstick yourself from this stuff once it gets its claws in you. Uh, But monitor monitor your inputs. Um, And the third thing, right from Paul, right from Jesus, uh, stop, stop, we gotta stop flirting, right? I mean, this is, and this is so natural. Human nature, right? Like, where's the edge? How close can I get to the edge? I was a student pastor for like 15 years. And every year I'd have students come to me and go, yeah, this is my date. She's awesome. We're going to the prom together. I'd be like, it's awesome. Hey, we have a question for you. Okay. And, you know, where's the line? How, you know, how close can we get to sin without sinning? And I always laugh and I always say, well, one, thank you for asking me because everyone else is wondering and you had the courage to ask. That said, the question you're asking is completely the wrong question. It's like if you're at the Grand Canyon and there's a cliff and it drops off like a billion feet. I know it's not that deep, but use your imagination, right? What you do is you don't go, I wonder how close I can get to this before I slip and fall to my death, right? That's not the question you ask. What's the better question? How far back can I stay from the edge because I don't want to slip? And I think that's what Paul is trying to say when he says, you know, flee from sexual immorality. In Corinth, that meant maybe you don't go near some of those places because maybe you're not strong enough because you're a human to be around that without slipping or without increasing the odds that you'll slip. So he says, just just back away from the edge. When it comes to sexual immorality, you need to flee, not flirt. Because when you flirt, you almost always, always find yourself slipping and getting hurt and hurting the people around you. And that is not the path to a better life. So with that, I'd like to invite you to stand and I'll close us in prayer.
Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus among us as light in a dark world. Thank you for his shocking, disruptive words that help us understand how much you love us. What you see in us, your hopes and your dreams for us. And we confess we live in a world that all too often settles for counterfeit intimacy. And we want what's better. And we need grace because we have all messed this up. But thank you for loving us anyway. Thank you for inviting us forward. Thank you for showing us the path, teaching us how to walk. And then walking that path first, thank you for inviting us to follow. And so for a few of us, um, this might be a very, very significant morning because maybe it's the morning we finally draw a line in the sand and say, you know what? I've had enough of this. And, if that, and for those friends, I pray that you give them courage as they reach out to someone who loves them, who can help them find that better path. So thank you for loving us. Thank you for grace. Thank you for believing in us when we don't believe in ourselves. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week.